0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.
2: Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And on this episode of the podcast, we are very excited to welcome a special guest. Uh, We'll introduce him in just one moment, Um, but we are going to discuss... Cult mentality, the anti vaccine movement, and the predilection for conspiratorial thinking. <laughs> so, not a controversial topic at all. Um, so, we're really excited to dig in today. Um, before we do that, let's go ahead and recap last week's episode where we talked about aging and longevity. So, we discussed life expectancy as a metric and shifting demographics over time. We touched upon the impact of nature versus nurture on the age. Process and social determinants of health that may impact the quantity and the quality of our lives. Uh, Andrea helped us by zooming in on the cellular processes of aging to discuss what happens to our bodies as we age. We discussed some well known longitudinal studies on aging and longevity and their findings, including some of the predictors of longevity as well as cognitive health later in life. We then spend some time talking about the blue zones around the world. Uh, These are places with the highest concentration of centenarians. Those are people who live to be 100 years or older and the evidence-based common denominators that link these populations. This was a really cool episode because it helped us set the stage for many future episodes that we plan to record on epigenetics, the booming anti-aging cosmetic industry, and more. So if you did not catch last week's episode, definitely go back and check that out. Um, Andrea, would you like to kick us off uh, for this week's episode? Yeah, so part of the reason behind
0: behind why we wanted to dig into this topic really had to do with some of our recent social media posts. So if you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you will have noticed that we recently did some debunks on some of Joe Rogan's podcast guests, um, namely Dr. Robert Malone and Dr. Peter McCullough. So they've gone onto the Joe Rogan podcast and have spread a variety of disinformation statements about vaccinations about covid 19 and things like that so we initially wanted to just kind of dissect the science and why these statements you know were incorrect um, so that people who, are in fact tuning into that episode or know somebody who is tuning into those episodes could be armed with with this sort of information to debunk them. But after we started thinking, you know, realizing how popular his podcast is and how much of this you know, I want to say echo chamber he's really cultivated, we wanted to discuss some of the inner workings behind this group mentality. And and in a way, it really is almost like a cult mentality. Um, And of course, Robert Malone and Peter McCullough both um, flung around the term mass formation psychosis to as a way to insinuate that the rest of the population is somehow brainwashed into thinking that COVID vaccines are safe and effective. And so we thought, why not bring on an actual expert about this topic, about group mentality? Um, and so we reached out to an expert, Dr. Uh, Jay Van Bavel, um, and he graciously agreed to join us today. So, um, very quickly, Dr. Van Bavel is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. He's an affiliate at the Stern School of Business and Management Organizations. He's also the director of the Social Identity and Morality Lab, and he's the co-author of The Power of Us, Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. Prior to joining NYU, Jay completed his PhD at the University of Toronto and a postdoctoral fellowship at Ohio State. And his research specifically focuses on how collective concerns, things like group identity, identities, moral values, and political beliefs ultimately shape the mind, brain, and people's behavior. So his research addresses issues of group identity, social motivation, cooperation, implicit bias, moral judgment, decision-making, and social media. And so he studies these sorts of issues using a variety of methods, including things like neuroimaging, um, lesion patients, social cognitive tasks, economic tasks cross-cultural surveys, and computational social sciences. So really, if anybody is equipped to answer these questions, it's him. So thank you so much, Jay, for joining us today. Thank you, Jay. (laughs)
3: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: And Jay, Andrew and I were actually chatting just before this, uh, just before we launched the episode, that of course, you know, we feel this is such an important topic that we think many of our listeners will be interested in. But we also selfishly really want to pick your brain, um, because the whole goal of the podcast and of our social media page is to reach you know the population at large we we don't want our podcast and our page to be an echo chamber we don't only want to reach people who think the way that we do so we're very excited to chat with you today so thanks again
3: great i'm happy to answer all your questions
2: so why don't we kind
0: of kick it off with with maybe like a a primer on, you know, this sort of group mentality and and what factors determine how people fit into these buckets really before we get into kind of the group identity of the anti-vaccine movement?
3: Yeah, so there's about 50 or 60 years of research on group psychology and how people start to identify with a group, and this starts very easily. You can simply flip a coin and you can put people— on a team and immediately they start liking their in-group members and trusting them more and looking more towards them, uh, for decisions and for information. And so that's a basic part of human nature. And then once you're in a group, what matters is what the norms are. So some groups have norms that value accuracy. So we're a group of scientists here, so we've been trained to think about, you know, being accurate, and then if somebody spreads misinformation, um, they would lose status among a group of scientists. You know, they stop getting invited out to dinners, they don't get asked to be on conference panels anymore. Um, But there are other groups that have norms that don't value accuracy. They value conspiratorial thinking, they are more likely to share misinformation, if people get caught in a fact check saying something wrong, it doesn't harm their reputation. And so that is very common in in cults, in conspiracy groups, uh, and also sometimes among political propagandists.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we often find when we're engaging with folks, when we're trying to dispel misinformation, you know, it seems that people that are resistant to vaccination kind of fall into one of two camps. One are the truly kind of, apprehensive, the skeptics, where they are receptive to new information, but they've heard from another source something that scared them because maybe that was a propaganda piece that was utilizing the appeal to emotion. Um, And then there's this other faction that the more you provide them with fact-checking, the more they dig their heels in. Um, And so that's really, I think, the group that's kind of most entrenched in these anti-vaccine beliefs and the the ones that are really, you know, indoctrinated into these sort of echo chambers. So, you know, is there is there a certain personality trait, you know, aside from kind of this, you know, assigning themselves self-assigning into groups that kind of determines how people might fall prey to this or or which type of person may fall prey to this?
3: Yeah, there are a couple personality traits that can predict who tends to f- fall for conspiracy theories and misinformation. One of them are people who just aren't motivated to pay deep attention. And so they're just like not very good critical thinkers. Um, They're maybe just making intuitive judgments about the information that they're seeing. Oh, that sounds kind of true and they don't really look into it or fact check it. Um, And then there's the people who are actually motivated to believe misinformation. And so for some of them, this is people who just like believe that the world is intrinsically uh, conspiratorial or that you know, people are out to get them. Um, for some people, that kind of moves into almost like the realm of clinical problems. So, for example, there's a small percentage of the population that is paranoid schizophrenic. Um, but that tends to be a very small percentage of the population. Um, the other kind of side of it is, If you're in groups that you care about and they start adopting false beliefs, misinformation, conspiracy theories, you're more likely to believe it because your fellow group members are repeating it to you. And so that's often where you get, you know, a real spread of misinformation because if the group is big enough, you know, then those people will spread it and and share it and pass it along and buy into it. And then when it's challenged – they can see it as a threat to their identity or to their group status. And that's often where people get really entrenched or engage in. You, you, I think, alluded to backlash. Uh, And this is what happened to me when I when I engaged in a fact check recently. And that got shared in some mainstream uh, news sources like the Associated Press and Reuters. It led to a backlash amongst this uh, group of prominent conspiracy theorists. They don't like being told that they're sharing false information. They don't like being corrected.
0: And we've seen that, you know, obviously, you know, we, on our page where we've tried to, you know, fact check um even just kind of basic biology. And, you know, there are people that are like, huh, I never, you know, knew that. But there are certainly a, a group of them that you know, and, and and unfortunately, you know, in this particular situation with COVID-19, it has been incredibly politicized. So there, there are some pretty clear delineations between, you know, who's receptive to information and who's not. And it does get, you know, quite hostile um, when people have those, those beliefs that they held that are challenged.
3: This is very much an American uh, phenomenon. So I've been studying this since the first stages of the pandemic. And the pandemic has been highly polarized in the U.S., where you know, especially like Trump supporters are among the least likely to believe the pandemic is serious. They were the least likely to engage in social distancing. We have a huge study on that. They were less likely to wear masks. Now they're less likely to get vaccinated. Um, we just finished a study analyzing every single county's vaccination rate in the U.S., and Uh, Who they voted for was the single biggest predictor of uh, vaccine rate. And counties that voted for Trump were by far the least likely to have high vaccine rates. And not only that, but this uh, partisanship was five times more powerful than the next biggest predictor of vaccine attitudes. So it just shows you, like, of all the things that seem to be driving... Vaccine uh, behavior right now—that is the single biggest predictor by far, and in, in the data that we've seen.
2: So, Jay, what do you credit? I mean, I, <laughs> it just seems to to us that this this mentality is—you know—this anti-science movement, especially the anti-vax movement, is really gaining traction, um, and obviously we're we're seeing the effects of that now. What do you credit for this seemingly rapid increase in these mentalities?
3: Yeah, so I think there's two ways of thinking about it that, you know, in the data. One is that before COVID, anti vax attitudes, were not really linked to political party identification. And so you would see like, you know, soccer moms in California who didn't want to get vaccinated and you'd see like conservative traditional religious communities, you know, in Ohio that were unlikely to get vaccinated. And so those were the types of places that would have measles outbreaks. And so it wasn't really clearly political. It wasn't left or right. It wasn't really until COVID took off And you saw rhetoric from Donald Trump dismissing the seriousness of COVID. And then that was echoed on on platforms like Fox News and on social media. And from the er, very earliest stages, COVID was not taken very seriously. And so one of the reasons people didn't engage in distancing or mask wearing or now vaccine is because there's a large group of the population that's driven by their political identity um, who didn't take it seriously. And the reason I say political identity is because if you look in other countries, It's not really, um, and we just did an analysis of people in 68 countries around the world, and this wasn't the case in other countries. So even if you just drive north to Canada, conservatives there uh, took the pandemic seriously, and partly it's because there was a study showing that conservative leaders in Canada took it seriously. Um, If you go throughout Europe and other countries, um, conservatives in most of those countries are taking it just as seriously as liberals. So it didn't have to be this case. It was when leaders and, and elites Triggered th- that as an identity-based issue among their followers.
2: Yeah. So J- can I just give one little disclaimer here, Andrea? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so one, and I think I alluded to this at the beginning, Jay. You know, one of the goals of this podcast is, you know, that w- we do want to be apolitical and dispassionate. We want Democrats, Republicans, Independents, and everyone in between to tune in, and we want to be a trusted source for them. And I just want to be clear that what Jay is presenting here, this isn't opinion-based. Uh, Jay, you know, I don't want to speak for you. You are presenting action Actual objective data that have demonstrated that uh, po- political—I um, forget how you phrased it. Was it a uh, affiliation? Identity. I think Protocol, I- identity, uh, political ideology, ideology. ideology um, which is
3: yes. if you're conservative or liberal,
2: right. Uh, and, and that ha- we're seeing that that is associated with some of these beliefs. So I just wanted to give that little disclaimer here. These are not our opinions. This is based on objective data. Um, Andrea, sorry, did you you were about to say something?
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, it is really interesting. So obviously, you know, I, I'm an immunologist, a research immunologist. And so, you know, the anti-vaccine movement has kind of been intimately linked with my career. And exactly as you said, Jay, you know, during the Andrew Wakefield era It was a lot of these, you know, potentially socially liberal, you know, moms in particular who were concerned about these false claims that vaccines were linked to autism, which we know was falsified data is not true. Um, And then a lot of it was based on a lot of these fear mongering campaigns that vaccines contain toxins. So you had this kind of, you know, contingency that was anti-vaccine because, you know, they were trying or they were misled to, you know, that that this was supposed to be something about, you know, being health conscious and they didn't want to inject, you know, vaccines because they were trying to be health conscious. And then you also had, you know, a, a contingency that were anti-vaccine that were on the polar opposite side of the political spectrum, but tended to be very religious and or, you um, you know, kind of leaned a little more libertarian, and it was more about government control and government meddling. And, you know, I find it interesting that you know now a lot of those underlying reasons for previous vaccine hesitancy have kind of been gotten dis- displaced by this you know this this identity that you know now i'm opposed to vaccines and i'm i'm opposed to science and obviously there's a lot of overlap between those individuals and and individuals who deny other sorts of science phenomenon like um like climate change and you know i'd love to hear your thoughts about why this strategy, this kind of cultivating this identity is is so effective in recruiting followers in these sorts of anti-science or anti-vaccine movements.
3: So one of the issues here, and and again, I'm glad you distinguish this from people who are just vaccine hesitant, um, because there's some people that are just have heard mixed information. They're trying to get to the right decision for themselves and their family, Um, from people who are really Identified with this movement and and really hyper resistant to it. Yeah. And then the other thing I just want to say to, to give some nuance: you probably have Republicans listening to this who are vaccinated. And if you actually look at the data now, I believe the majority of Republicans are vaccinated. And so, you know, the it, the issue is simply that almost every every Democrat has now had one shot, whereas there's a huge actual conflict within the Republican uh, identified community. So when we have polarization between left and right. What we also have is polarization within the right, mm. where you know about a third of them refuse to get vaccinated no matter what, and yet maybe 50% of them are definitely vaccinated, wanted to from the very beginning, and took this uh, very seriously. And so the dynamic also within uh, uh, the Republican community, and I have friends who are Republican in these communities, If they get vaccinated, they can't share that on Facebook without getting pushback and criticism from their neighbors and friends or losing maybe job opportunities. And so there is also um, an environment there that's challenging if you are on the right and you do want to wear a mask or social distance or or get vaccinated. So I just want to make sure that there is an understanding of the dynamics in those communities are also pretty complex. I realize I didn't answer your question. Sorry. I just wanted to make sure I clarified that. No, no, that's fine. I think
0: it's I think it's really important. Obviously, we're not trying to to drop people into these big buckets. And there's yeah. a lot of nuance involved and you know, a lot of other factors. You know, I think I think we've found that people that are, you know, maybe more politically conservative, but are high risk or have high risk family members or, you know, who kind of yeah. understand the implications of these sorts of things are you know, more likely to seek out multiple sources of information and try and parse out what's credible and what's not. And, you know, I think one of the challenges is that you know, we have this consensus body of data, right? We have the overwhelming majority of scientists, healthcare workers, medical professionals, you know, et cetera, who are in support of vaccination, who, you know, share credible science. You know, I think the the recent data said that 96% of physicians were vaccinated, but there are these, you know, outliers even within these you know, science-driven communities that, um, you know, are in fact the minority, but they're very outspoken and they, you know, are are spreading the polar opposite information. And I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, why individuals that are that are more likely to fall into these buckets are resistant to the consensus, yeah. but would instead believe these outspoken minorities.
1: Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than home-
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So part of the issue here, I would say a big part of the issue is trust. So these communities are often less likely to trust experts and authorities. And so that makes it very hard sometimes to reach them, especially if they're getting different information, say, from their favorite news, TV personality, or people they follow on social media and what experts are saying. Then there is another thing that's actually kind of uh, almost like a challenge to that, which is when one expert comes out, when one doctor, so in this case Robert Malone, comes out and, and starts questioning vaccines, there is a weird thing where all of a sudden, because he's a doctor, they immediately trust him, and they ignore the 96% of doctors who actually got vaccinated. And so that implies that there's a little bit of uh, cherry picking. Mm-hmm. What they're trying to do here is the term in psychology is called confirmation bias. They're looking for people who are going to affirm their identity and their belief system and confirm, uh, you know, what they already believe. And And so they'll lift up Experts who who disagree with the consensus. And then what they do is a couple things. Um, One, they will call them a courageous whistleblower, um, even if the rest of the scientific community considers them like a a crank or a conspiracy conspiracy theorist. Um, And then the second thing they do is they have to look for reasons to dismiss the overwhelming majority of experts who agree, the 96% of doctors who got a vaccine. And so that's where they start to come up with terms like mass formation psychosis. Mm. This is a way of saying... This overwhelming majority of people who disagree with me must be hypnotized in some way By some, you know, malevolent beings who are in charge of of the system, or they must be on the payroll of a pharmaceutical company. And so that's where the conspiracy theories really help you um, maintain your belief system because they allow you to write off the overwhelming majority of people who are experts who are recommending something very different from the one or two people that you're listening to.
2: So, Jay, we definitely want to talk more about mass formation psychosis. Um, I do have just one follow-up question. You know, we 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 keep talking about Robert. Malone. And, you know, yes, there are Peter McCullough, there there are others. How do these people exist? You know, we, we get these questions all the time. You know, this one is a, a physician or a scientist. How do we even explain what they're saying? Since it just, it feels like such a betrayal to, you know, to medicine and science. Why do these people turn their back on, on the evidence? Can we talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah. So I would say there's at least three things that come to mind that could explain it. So I don't know Robert Malone, so I can't explain him or any specific person, but there's at least three things. One is that you almost never have a 100% scientific consensus on everything. You know, every scientific debate I'm in, there might be 70, 80% of people who agree. But the moment you get to 96% of scientists who agree, usually that means there's overwhelming evidence. But there's always going to be one or two outliers. And so, well, why are there those outliers? Um, one is because these people are not actually that expert on the topic. Um, sometimes they will be... Um, you know uh, it, uh, they might be going through personal issues or mental health issues um and we don't really know the internal psychology of those individuals. Um, I don't know if that's the case here. There's a third reason, which is really just mundane, which is that there's a huge economic incentive structure for being uh, wrong about these things. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, the classic conspiratorial mindset is follow the money. Well, in this case, the money is pretty easy to follow. So um, if you look at four of the top, top five most shared Substack stack uh, platforms, um, a couple weeks ago, I was looking this up, were people who are sharing misinformation. And then if you go to their Substack, like if you go to Robert Malone's Substack uh, newsletter, he announces prominently that like many, many people are, are paying him, are paid subscribers to this. So he's probably making six figures or hundreds of thousands of dollars spreading misinformation. And so you have to understand that there's an economic incentive structure for this. Or if you look at Alex Jones, who was maybe the most famous conspiracy theorist in the country... He was recently sued in a lawsuit. He had made over $100 million selling all kinds of uh, snake oil and fake miracle cures on his website. And so they're at the very top of the pyramid of misinformation. The people who are become famous for this are often making millions of dollars uh, by spreading it and getting a profile. And so it's just a really simple explanation of that the incentive structures. Unfortunately, the economic incentives are very clear to to spread this stuff.
0: Oh, Jay. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's it's really interesting because because, you know, we've we've done a few posts on on this on, you know, the conflicts of interest and the financial incentives and, and you know, pandemic profiteering and things like that. And it's always very interesting to me. and And maybe you can talk about about this. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of cognitive dissonance here, where where you know, for example, Jess and myself get accused of being pharma shills when when we're in fact, you know, investing our own personal funds into trying to debunk things. But if you point out that you know Joe Rogan has a hundred million dollar contract to bring on these controversial conspiratorial folks, then it's oh well, you know that that's that's not applicable here, and and I. I wonder, you know, if maybe you can illuminate us as to why it's follow the money when it comes to scientific consensus, but it's not follow the money when it comes to these outspoken minorities who are, in fact, making millions of dollars a year.
3: Yeah. So part of this, again, is just the conspiratorial mindset. It's, But they're looking for, again, confirmation bias. They're looking for evidence that there's a conspiracy when it's against them. Um, but not one that actually might be somebody on their side. And so that the classic term for that is motivated cognition or motivated reasoning. They're selectively engaging in this type of skepticism when it's someone that they don't want to agree with. Um, and, and I'll say this applied to me. I, I gave a talk on I, I did a paper summarizing a bunch of research relevant to COVID early in the pandemic and, I gave a talk to the World Health Organization, and then when these conspiracy theorists saw that I fact-checked this mass formation psychosis, they started going through and finding, oh, I gave a talk to the World Health Organization, and they started spreading misinformation that I made money from this. What they don't realize is that for professors, I'm doing this for free. This is like my, I'm volunteering to present a paper which I got paid $0 for writing. Uh, that took me a lot of extra time in my evenings to write with all my colleagues who got paid $0 for it. And then we give talks. And if you've ever been in academia, it's, it's the opposite of a conspiratorial world, which is you have to pay money to go to a conference to present your own right, research. Right. So so it's, the, it's, it's so opposite from what conspiracy theorists believe. They're so used to seeing This evidence of like money from powerful people trickling down. Well, it turns out that does happen. And in one case, classically, where it happened was with big tobacco Mm -hmm. when they were trying to cover up. Information about the harms of smoking, they would pay researchers and support their research just for that one person to, to provide any evidence that maybe there were some benefits to smoking. Um, the oil industry, I used to work in the oil industry. Oil industry is famous for doing the same thing. They'll find any one or two scientists who agree, and then they'll flow huge amounts of money to them because they're just looking for anybody who can disagree at the consensus. And so that's an issue also in the climate change world. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, like th- that stuff's all well-documented. Documented. there's been hearings in Congress on these types of things, but if you're a conspiracy theorist, you're not looking for that, you're probably not thinking about it in the same way, and you also probably don't understand how science works, and you don't, you know, understand that the real financial incentives are for somebody like Alex Jones. I've never met a single scientist who made remotely close to what Alex Jones uh, has made. So,
2: and you never will.
3: <laughs> and I never will. <laughs> right. It's not about scientists like driving Porsches or something yeah. like that. It's just, I. <laughs>
2: so, me and my well, beat up Subaru. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, Jay, just on the topic of cognitive dissonance, Andrea and I, we talk all the time how you have this group of people, they're anti. Vax and um you know, a large number of those people do inevitably get sick, and some of them do get sick enough to require medical care. And they seem to, you know, suspend <laughs> their mistrust of, I, I don't know, medicine and science when it comes time to actually needing medical care, to, you know, seeing these doctors who are now treating them, you know, who, who had been begging them to get vaccinated. They're begging for treatments like monoclonal antibodies, which are not FDA- approved or, uh, which is, uh, manufactured by Pfizer, you know, it's, it's, how is it, you know, is it just that they become desperate in the moment or that they're not connecting the dots that, you know, these things are also again, you know, not FDA approved or, you know, manufactured by the pharmaceutical companies that they vilify. I don't know. There's just so much cognitive dissonance there. I'd love to pick that apart a little bit.
3: (laughs) Yeah, so I'm glad you used the word cognitive dissonance. So in our book, The Power of Us, we have a whole chapter on cult psychology. And cult psychology is fascinating because cults are often faced with Conflicting information. So one of one of my favorite studies on this, uh, psychologists found this cult that predicted that the world was basically going to end, and this alien ship was going to come rescue all the true believers at midnight. Well, they were in the house when midnight came, and the clock struck midnight, and no alien ship showed up, and the world didn't end, of course. Um, and so they watched what happened to these people, and. Uh, quickly, they they someone found out that there was a clock in another room that was running about five minutes slower. So that must be the true clock. So everybody runs to the other room and starts looking at this clock that's only saying 1155. Well, the alien ship's going to come. Now, that must be the true clock. It will come in five minutes. Of course, the alien ship doesn't come. And then they're sitting there in silence in the middle of the night for hours someone's crying they're they're facing this giant fact check that their worldview is totally wrong the one prediction of this cult is absolutely wrong and it's just been falsified in front of their own faces in front of their own eyes uh, and what do they do you might expect that they would like start packing up their suitcase say it was nice meeting all of you i'm just gonna go back to my old life to my family to my to my home um this was this was fun while it lasted but in fact, they found the opposite because people are under so much cognitive dissonance between this group of people that they really care about and this group that they're deeply identified with and the fact that it's wrong. They, they have to resolve it. And so what they did was the cult leader came into the room and said our beliefs were so strong that they saved us and they saved the world from the doomsday. Mm-hmm. And then the next morning, those cult leaders started going out going out into the world and proselytizing, which they hadn't even really done before. All of a sudden, they needed to go spread the gospel of this cult. And so that's the way that they reduced dissonance. And one of the, the conclusions that Leon Fessinger, who's the guy who invented cognitive dissonance, he was in the room with, with these cult members at the time studying them. He said that one of the key predictors of, of whether or not you stuck with your cult beliefs was if You had social support. And so his conclusion is like any one person, if they're fact checked or proven wrong, uh, it's easy for them to kind of like get over that false belief. But when you're surrounded by community who bolsters that false belief and helps you rationalize it and gives you a sense of meaning and purpose, that becomes really hard to to leave. And so you can think of that in terms of like these anti-science communities and these conspiracy theory groups around COVID. It's like, of course, this has been proven wrong again and again, but there's so much dissonance. For them, because these become parts of their identity, parts of their friend groups, they've now posted a million times about it on their Facebook wall, and so everybody knows that this is their belief system, it's very threatening for them to be just publicly humiliated and proven wrong and, and lose the sense of community they've built in, in real world or online, and so they're constantly looking for ways around it. Um, as they have to confront that COVID's real and people are getting sick and dying, um, they look for miracle cures. And so they're looking for invermectin or all these other things. And so on one hand they're saying that the vaccines haven't been vetted, but and and so this was a, I had a family member who's telling me the vaccines haven't been vetted. And I'm like, but then meanwhile sending me this really small shady study on Invermectin showing it's a miracle cure and I just looked at it and I said the study that was done on the vaccines is way larger, way more rigorous and way more effective than this miracle cure you're sending me and so it's like they're, they're just doing their best just like these, these cult members to rationalize this and, and in fairness a lot of them aren't experts they don't understand about like sample size and registered clinical trials and the FDA oversight but they're grasping at straws to kind of make this thing all fit together in their mind without giving up this part of their identity and, and this community that they're part of.
0: I think this is a good opportunity to kind of bring it back to kind of the impetus for this and, and really Robert Malone. So, you know, he's become kind of this figurehead of the anti-vaccine movement. He he has an MD. Um, you know, he doesn't practice medicine. He he started a, a PhD program, which is where he published that. You know, he was a co-author on that, that small paper that was looking at methods to deliver mRNA into cells in the 80s. And he's kind of used that to springboard you know, his self-proclaimed inventor of mRNA vaccine technology. And initially he said he was the inventor of the vaccine. And then when people fact check him on that, he walked it back and said, well, he invented the technology. And then when people fact check him on that, he tried to walk it back. And, you know, in reality, he he himself is vaccinated with an mRNA vaccine you know his his wife's facebook still has a post you know last april announcing that he was going in to get vaccinated and all of their friends are congratulating you know him for his great work on there yet you know he pushes the exact opposite he he warns people to not get vaccinated and he you know uses these claims that um you know, they sound scientific, right? They use jargon that are loosely affiliated with immunology to kind of appeal to authority, um, but then at the same time, he he shares these outlandish statements like mass formation psychosis and I'd really I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because you know you you did that piece on it um it was such a great debunk and um I'd love to hear you explain kind of you know what where this phrase came from what they're kind of in, intended you know it to mean and and what what is real with regard to that
3: Yes so I'll, I'll maybe I'll start the origin story for me down this whole rabbit hole was I got emailed by Reuters which is kind of a very mainstream news source. And they said, have you ever heard of this term, mass formation psychosis? Here's a quote, how it was used on this show. And I just had finished writing this book and I've spent 18 years studying groups and identity and I had never once heard anything, any term uh, like this. And so um, I did my own research. I did a Google scholar search and looked and there was not a single academic paper ever on this topic. And so I said, no, I've never heard of this. It sounds you know, like it was made up, essentially, very much like a pseudoscience type of concept. And then I posted this on Twitter, and then immediately I have other colleagues and scholars who even have more expertise, been studying this for decades more than me, crowd psychology. And they said the same thing. Um, they said they'd never heard of this term, it sounds like a pseudoscience concept. It seemed like it had traces to this old idea from like the 1890s that has been widely debunked in the last 50 years. And so I said this, and then this triggered this whole, uh, the, and then the AP, Associated Press, contacted me. They also interviewed other experts, including um, an expert in psychosis and clinical psychology. They also interviewed an expert in hypnosis, because Robert Malone said all these people in Nazi Germany were hypnotized, just like, presumably, people who are getting their vaccine are hypnotized. And it's just anybody who knows what these concepts are hypnosis and psychosis psychosis is extremely rare it only happens in three percent of people ever in their life um, at any given time less than one percent of the population is psychosis and so it's impossible to conclude that like Nazi Germany was psychosis or hypnosis it's impossible to conclude that four billion people who have gotten the vaccine are under hypnosis or psychosis and so it, it seemed to me like a made-up set of language that was designed to discredit the overwhelming majority of people who have gotten this now. In society. And so it's a way of, again, going back to cognitive dissonance, of rationalizing and justifying your fringe or conspiratorial belief.
0: So ultimately, you know, Malone and or McCullough and or other figureheads in the anti-vaccine movement have kind of coined this term to to sound like science jargon, you know, to, to supposedly um, align itself with some sort of clinical diagnostic when it's really just a way to you know, disregard the vast majority of of science and and consensus data in the context of COVID-19.
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the term, I guess, was coined only a few weeks before Robert Malone even went on this mm. show, but it was mentioned on a podcast by Matthias Desmet, who's a professor in Belgium. And so he, I guess, coined it on a podcast a few weeks earlier and Malone was like eg- elaborating it. But I looked into Desmet's publications, he doesn't have a single paper from what I could tell on group psychology, and I think he got the term mass formation from psychodynamic theory, which is like Freudian theory, which has long fallen out of favor in in psychology. so even the term mass formation, which he uses, is just not a term that has ever, I've ever seen in the, in the group psychology, collective psychology literature. And then he cited some studies that really are just basic things like social norms, like people tend to estimate a line as longer when everybody else is estimating it. But what he doesn't realize, and I've read those papers, in those same papers, as long as one person points out that the line is not actually longer, participants won't conform anymore. And so clearly they're not under psychosis, they're not under hypnosis, they can tell it, they just feel pressure to go along, but they immediately don't do it anymore the moment that at least one person you know, doesn't agree with the, with the consensus. So hmm. even the studies that he cites, which are like 50 years old, he doesn't accurately cite what those studies show and what the majority of people do in those conditions. So it's just like a really, it kind of reminds me of like, a, again, pseudoscience or pop psychology that's like where someone who doesn't understand about what the actual research is on this topic. And so it's unfortunate that this gets on one or two podcasts and 50 million people listen to it because then people act as if it's a true thing. Whereas like no actual expert on this specific topic would agree with any of that. And almost those ideas of, gone out of vogue in the last 50 years. It's like, you know, taking an idea from 50 years ago, imagine taking an idea from, like, biology or something from 50 years ago and pretending it's still true. Like, there's so many things that have been debunked. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. So we talk all the time about the death of expertise, Jay. And it's so what you're describing right now is a group of non-experts who pretend to be experts who use this pseudo-expert <laughs> language to come up with a made-up term that doesn't make sense. That 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 was my takeaway.
0: <laughs> and I think, you know, we did this debunk, right? And we didn't focus on the, the obvious conspiratorial claims. I think with the Robert McCullough one we did because he used mass formation psychosis as well. Um, but we focused on, you know, the loosely science related claims that Malone made on the podcast. And we we wanted to really underscore, you know, the things he was strategically omitting. So he was cherry picking data and he was making claims that, you know, sounded legitimate, but and and you know, using his credentials, but if you were in the science world, you would understand that they weren't, but the vast majority of listeners are not. And, you know, so then when we debunked it, we get the blowback, you know, where we're like, well, you know, you have to listen to both sides, you know, there's both sides, you have to listen to the other side of opinion. And, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts, you know, because obviously we know when it comes to data, you know, there they're, they're isn't always a both sides, right? The data support one thing or they don't. And so, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the topic of, you know, listening to both sides and this premise of false balance when it comes to actual scientific data.
1: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan
3: You know, debunked his mass formation psychosis. If I debate debate him. (laughs) We gotta ask that too. (laughs) Yeah, there's this like certain category of people, it's like you would you debate them? And I'm like, of course I would debate them. I'd be happy to go on Joe Rogan and debate them tomorrow. But the problem is that, and there's research on this, that if you debate somebody um, let's say there's the research on this is actually around like climate change or global warming. If you have somebody who's like a scientist says you know the, the world's getting warmer, and then someone who says no it's not, it creates the illusion that there's actually debate on it. Mm-hmm. And so what's and then the person who's lying can get away with it unless there's like a third party fact checking it. So debate, I don't think, actually is very effective at this. In fact, it can backfire. What turns out to be more effective is communicating what the consensus perspective is. So when you said that 96 percent of doctors have gone vaccinated, the average person actually finds that compelling. And so it's not really a debate. I I would go with consensus information or 97 percent of climate scientists think the Earth is warming and that humans are. Uh, you know, partly responsible for that. Um, And so that I think is, is more compelling to third parties. You're always going to have that fringe group who's just going to believe what they want to believe and you can't really convince them. Just like there's flat earthers. They believe the earth is flat. I could go on the Joe Rogan show and debate them that the earth is round and I could, you know, get, present a bunch of evidence, including a bunch of eyewitness testimony from astronauts who've looked down on the earth and found that it's not flat. But That would probably not convince people who are like committed uh, flat earthers, right? And so that is the challenge right now is that Debating people who are essentially flat earthers on these topics because they're so far out of mainstream is probably not effective and probably actually could backfire. And so I do think it's helpful to give fact checks, but who you're really trying to talk talk to and communicate with is kind of an unbiased, open minded third party. You're not really probably going to get through to the flat earther type of version of person on, on this topic.
2: So Jay, it's funny that you say that because that's sort of the, the whole impetus behind what we're doing, right? Is is to be that unbiased third party, and of course we get thrown in our face, Andrea, I know you know what I'm about to say, that we should rename ourselves biased science because they feel that we're only presenting (laughs) one side. And it's not that we're presenting one side. It's that we're presenting the best available evidence and that general consensus that you're describing. So it's very, very frustrating for us that people really um, misinterpret uh, what what bias means in the context of science. Um, Jay, you know, there's this million dollar question and and you you actually just touched on it that you know will there always be an untouchable group of people is there a way to to reach people who who do buy into this thinking to you know to to is there a point, basically, to, to what we're trying to do <laughs> to reach these people? And if the answer is yes, we can at least maybe reach some of them, how best can we do that? Are there, are there certain ways that we could more effectively try to reach these people?
3: I mean, I think the type of service that you do by having these discussions on your podcasts that are open, that transparent, that also evolve as the science gets better and we learn more. Um, most people trust scientists, actually a huge proportion of the population. And so what we're often talking about is a small sliver of people. Um, Unfortunately, misinformation is easier than ever to spread, and you can go on podcasts that have 50 million people will will download uh, like the Robert Malone one. So you're kind of in a situation that's particularly tough. But I think over the long run, spreading the science, being transparent, being open, being honest, being accurate, updating your beliefs as you get new data is a way that scientists can continue to build trust. I think there are... uh, effective strategies of communication, right? And so this goes back to, like, sharing what the scientific consensus is. That's going to be more convincing to a third party than just having two people debate or just presenting two sides. So I I do think that. I also think, like you know, in some ways, I feel like I've become way smarter about epidemiology in the last two years, so much smarter about it than I ever thought I would be. Like a lot of people have learned an enormous amount because there's been a very public effort to have scientists on the evening news in a way that I've never seen before, to have podcasts like yours kind of emerge and fill this like real urgent public need. And so I am hoping that there's a silver lining of this, which is that we have uh, these platforms and and now institutional practices of bringing experts in to way In on things that will stick around long after the pandemic's over that can be used for all kinds of other issues that come up in society. Because I think historically, in some ways, we were worse off where it was just political pundits like dominating the evening news and debating something. And it was very, you know, spinning, spin doctors. So I do think that this is a very, a much more useful environment. But unfortunately, I think we're we're now in the world where we're up against uh, an incentive structure that rewards. Small number of people for spreading misinformation, and that 's just something that 's going to be a hard challenge i don 't know the way around it, but I think what you're doing is exactly what I would love to see more of in society
2: well thank you and and you know you, you touched on something else um, jay that i that I think is really important that this this concept that science changes as we learn more right and and that concept it's not something that everyone grasps. And so when we update our knowledge and when guidelines or recommendations change, it's thrown in our face. And of course, you know, some very recent classic examples, the, the CDC you know, has has updating their guidance on on masking or the number of vaccines that we'll need, whatever it is. And, and people see this as, oh, well, you were wrong. And no, of course, it's not that we're wrong. It's that we're learning more. Um, so that that's a concept that I wish that uh, more people Understood. Um, Just wanted to note that that's so so important. Yeah, I would I would say another concept.
3: There was an article in the Onion. Which is like a satirical <laughs> news source, and this week they talk about the CDC sending out like a pamphlet to teach people about probability theory. And I do feel like if scientists could talk more in the language of probabilities, like vac- getting vaccinated doesn't guarantee you won't get COVID, but it reduces the probability you'll get COVID. Um, it doesn't guarantee you won't go to the hospital, but it dramatically reduces the probability you'll get sick enough you go to the hospital. And so um, I do think that the media has done, you know, often a good job of it. But I've also seen the media make a lot of mistakes. And so I'll just talk about the Australian Open. You had the world's number one ranked tennis player who was, was not vaccinated went there. And I must have saw like 50 news articles on everything from ESPN to the New York Times about Djokovic and he didn't get vaccinated. And, and there's all this stuff. What I only saw one article that was buried in the bottom pointing out that 96 to 97 percent of all the top 100 players in the world, men and women, um, have gotten vaccinated. And so Unfortunately, the way our our media is structured is to go to the outlier who's the exotic case and present and just cover that in great depth. But they often don't contextualize it by saying like, you know, 96, 97% of people in the same line of work have gotten vaccinated. And so I think that is something that we need to to think about as a society, how we're going to communicate things in ways that don't falsely communicate norms uh, that are inaccurate.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I've felt that frustration for, I mean, throughout the pandemic, but even before. And, you know, we know that there's a financial incentive on clicks. And, you know, so these headlines get often more sensationalized than ever. And, you know, uh, research now shows that the majority of people don't read beyond a headline. And, and so, you know, in some ways it, it does a disservice to public health and science messaging because people aren't getting the, the full story or the full information. Of course, we could talk about media regulations and things like that, probably a topic for another another discussion. But, um, you know, it. it Jess and I wrote uh, an op-ed early on in the pandemic that really underscored the need for public health agencies, scientists, and, and the media to come together to kind of dispel misinformation and, you know, how we really need to be working together. And, you know, I do see some of that, but I think in other ways, exactly in the example you illustrated, it's, it's often making us have to do more work because then we have to say, wait, wait, wait a minute, you know, that's not what actually happened. You know, this is what, this is the context surrounding that, that headline.
3: Yeah, I think that part of our job is to do that. I also want to go back to your original point that if we do want to reach out to people who are in these kind of committed false belief systems, I, I think that I'll just draw one last lesson from cult psychology, that one thing that cults and cult leaders do is they cut people off from family members who are critical of the cult. They'll call that person like a suppressive individual. And they try to pressure you to to cut ties with them. And that makes you more reliant on the cult. Part of what uh, conspiracy theorists and misinformation uh, architects are doing is trying to, to foster distrust in experts and science and scientists and medical doctors. And so that they can get you to rely entirely on them for their beliefs. So this was like Robert Malone's recent newsletter I saw, which critiqued us. He was trying to, like, insinuate that all the experts fact-checking him, which is, like, many, many experts and many, many news outlets, are all, like, part of some conspiracy for China to get global control or something insane, right? right? He's trying to make you distrust all of these outlets and all of these experts so you just trust him. And so I think we also should probably do a better job of articulating what that strategy is and who and how he's profiting from that. And I don't know if he sincerely believes that or not like this is it doesn't really matter because that is a strategy that that cult leaders do. And so I think that we have to understand that 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 psychological strategy and manipulation is part of something that we've seen in many other contexts. We know what it does. And that's why it's really important for us to keep sharing information. If we have family members who have these false beliefs. Keep a line open with them, just like we would if they were in an abusive relationship. Abusers in relationships also try to isolate somebody from their family and and friends and support network. But if that person's ever ready to leave, it's really critical that other people they trust are there to help them out of it. So that's kind of my thought on it is... I never want to completely give up on on helping these people get accurate information.
2: Well, we don't either. And and I don't want to take up. You've been so generous with with your time, Jay. I have one final thought or question. And, and Andrea, I don't know if you have others. Um, but we get so many troll comments, um, many of which are conspiratorial in nature, uh, some of which are rather Violent and threatening. We've had our lives threatened. I mean, it, it's it's been really, really ugly. And you know, we've sort of vacillated between trying to engage with these folks, totally ignoring them, which is very difficult to do, of course, especially when they make it personal. You know, you're just like foaming at the mouth, and you really want to respond to them. So, you know, I guess I would be so curious to hear. You know, is it worth engaging them? Yeah, I've I've tried to read. I'm certainly not an expert in this, and that's why I'm so grateful to, to to have you weigh in on this. But, you know, I've read some of the literature. There was an, an article in The uh, the Atlantic uh, some uh, last year, and and I, they were describing, um, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but it was Leonid Rosenblatt and Frank Kiel, I hope I'm not, or Kale, I might be mispronouncing his name. And they, they coined the phrase, the illusion of explanatory depth, to refer to the way that our self-assurance crumples when we're invited to explain, apparently, simple ideas. So basically, you know, should we reply and engage these people and actually have them, okay, t- take us through this. Okay, so you think this is one big conspiracy and we're all, you know, walk it, walk us through the theory. And I guess the thinking is is that when they're forced to actually talk about the details, the whole thing will fall through because they won't actually be able to connect the dots. So just would be so curious to hear, is it worth in, engaging these people in your opinion? And if so, how?
3: <laughs> yeah. So so I, when I fact check this, I got a wave of harassment from people just like tagging me in pictures with rainbow dildos on Twitter endlessly to calling me a scumbag, to uh, commenting on my kid and my partner on their Instagram feeds, to trying to contact the president of my university and provost and trustees and get me fired. And this is just because I was quoted in a fact check, right? So I, I've seen this and then I saw like academic women who weighed in on this defending me and they, the comments to them immediately became sexually inappropriate and, and creepy. Um, and so I, I think like if you're getting harassment, don't respect, like the classic uh, response from the internet is never feed the trolls. Right. <laughs> so. So I wouldn't do that. In fact, if they're bad for your mental health, you have to mute them. Or and if they're really harassing, I would report and block them. Um, and then try to distinguish them from people who are just like curious. There are some people who are curious, but not, but not, you know, invested in in one belief system or another. Those are the people to ask why they believe that. So this is I saw. I had a colleague do this with um, when he saw me getting attacked on online. He's an expert also in misinformation, and he said can all the people criticizing Jay like share one piece of evidence for mass formation psychosis? And he actually engaged with them. and some people would try to share something and then he would just easily debunk it because most of it's like nonsense. Um, But of course, most of the comments he got were just like you would debunk something and then that person would immediately like insult him. Mm -hmm. And so, so I don't think it's like for most people it's worth their time or their, their mental health. So I would try if you can to sift through, People who are genuinely curious, from those who are just in engaged in harassment. And also, I should let you know that the person who is fostering all this harassment against me is a conspiracy theorist around COVID. But if you look at this guy's bio, you go to the Southern Poverty Law Center. He's an anti- uh, um, anti-Semite, mm-hmm. um, uh, misogynist. Um, you know, has all these links to other types of white supremacist groups. And so. Understand that these groups are often overlapping, unfortunately, in our society and that when you challenge the conspiracy theorists on something, they, it, it brings with them a overlapping Venn diagram of people in these other groups that are, are pretty ominous and so I would not um, invest your time or emotional energy uh dealing with those people. Actually, that some of those people are probably dangerous.
2: That That's really helpful, Jay. And and really, we're so sorry that, that you've been dealing with this and that <laughs> we've been dealing with this. This has really uh, opened up the floodgates for a whole lot of um, ugliness, to be honest with you. A lot you. of keyboard but
0: warriors. A lot of keyboard days. warriors, yeah. yes.
2: Well, I, Jay, I, I can't tell you how grateful we are for your time. Um, this is such an interesting conversation, really. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jess, and thank you, Andrea. Thanks for uh, sharing. Good scientific information with the world. Uh, it, we all benefit from it.
0: Yeah, it's been great having you on. I mean, we could pick your brain all day. <laughs> but um, but for our listeners, if you do want to hear more about uh, social identities and group thinking, um, you know, check out Dr. Van Bavel's book, The Power of Us, Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. Jay, we'd like to thank you again for joining us today. It was Truly an honor and, um, you know, very, very illuminating and in- informative for us and hopefully for our listeners. Um, so thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We also want to give a special thanks to our patrons who help support the pod. If you want to help us out, check out www.patreon.com slash unbiased science. We have three tiers of membership to choose from. We will be giving shout- Shout outs to some of our mad scientists each episode. So today we want to give a special thanks to Jamie Jeffords, Heather Thames, Dionysus uh, Fuster, Stephanie Barkowitz, and Andy Corkery. Next episode, we are actually covering a patron-selected topic. So yet another perk for all you patrons out there. That is going to be focused on leaky gut syndrome. What it is, what it isn't, and what the science says. Tune in here to hear everything you could possibly want to know about that topic. Of course, we will continue to provide updates on COVID-19 on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah,
1: oh, I am a scientist.
3: I'm not afraid of